to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Right now, one in five deaths for people between 20 and 49 is related to alcohol. I hate that so many people are dying from something that we've not only made legal, but a drug that we've glorified. We don't do that with other drugs. We ban commercials that make smoking look cool. We don't allow TV characters to smoke. Yet, we turn cases of beer into football displays in the grocery store. And we create music, movies, commercials, and TV shows that still send the message that everyone drinks and it's harmless to do so. Although many people can drink in moderation and it doesn't create problems for them, alcohol is a drug and there are always risks associated with consuming it. I'm hoping someday soon we'll take the risks alcohol poses a lot more seriously. Unfortunately, many people are now just discovering how dangerous alcohol is for themselves and they're having difficulty quitting. Every January, a lot of people attempt what's known as dry January, and they quickly realize that they can't stop drinking. In fact, some people discover just how dangerous it is to quit cold turkey, as regular drinkers might even die from withdrawal if they stop drinking too fast. If you want to stop drinking and you're physically dependent on alcohol, talk to your doctor about your options. There are medications that can help you safely detox from alcohol on an outpatient or an inpatient basis. And if you have a problematic relationship with alcohol, There are lots of treatment options available. Different treatments work for different people. There are medications that can help with cravings. There are support groups, education groups, therapy, inpatient rehab, intensive outpatient services, and even sober coaches. Most people mix and match a few services until they discover what works for them. Keep in mind that many people with substance use disorders also have an underlying condition that requires treatment too, like an anxiety disorder or depression. Seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist for the underlying condition is often a big part of treatment. On today's show, I'm talking to Richie Stevens, who is sharing his journey to recovery and what he learned along the way. Richie's an actor who often plays the bad guy on TV shows like NCIS, Days of Our Lives, and MacGyver. He also wrote a book called The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety. Richie says those parts come easy to him because for a long time, he was somewhat of a bad guy. In fact, he was an Irish gangster for most of his life. He did a lot of things he's not proud of, like selling drugs and beating people up. He also had serious problems with drugs and alcohol. There were times that he wanted to quit using substances and times when he convinced himself that he could quit if he really wanted to. But at some point, he decided to take a friend up on an offer to go to a 12-step meeting with him. But he didn't like it. In fact, he almost never went back to a second meeting. But he decided to give it another chance. And in his new book, The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety, he explains what it was like for him to go through each of the 12 steps. Some of the things he talks about today are why he didn't like 12-step meetings at first, what he eventually learned from them, and how he's managed to stay sober for a long time. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. It's the part of the show where I'll give you my take on the strategies Richie shares and explain how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Richie Stevens explaining The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety. Richie Stevens, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. 
Thanks, Amy. Good. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I'm a fan of your book. You wrote this book called The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety, My Life in 12 Steps. Of course, the title alone is intriguing. I'm sure people are going to be like, wait, The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety? Because we talk so much about uh, people who are struggling, they get into recovery, and so often they say, yeah, I had a past, I had a problem, and then I had rock bottom, I hit this epiphany, and then I changed my life. One of the things you talk about is like, there wasn't this one moment, there was all these different things that happened to you, and you never really hit like this ultimate rock bottom where you ended up homeless under a bridge, but you live this crazy lifestyle. Can you just explain a little bit about what your life was like before you got into recovery? (laughs) Okay, yeah, I've had a pretty crazy life. So I'm originally from Ireland, obviously, and I'm an actor here in Hollywood. And usually on TV and movies, I play bad guys, you know, the gangster, the killer, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, in real life, I used to actually be a gangster before I got sober, got sober 12 years ago. And, um, you know, uh, basically my addiction and, and alcoholism led me into all these crazy situations and the Hollywood people didn't really know that I used to actually be involved in that life. And, um, so the, the book is, is a tell all about how I got sober and how I got away from all that stuff and started off in Ireland. Then I moved to San Francisco and one point I was living in Australia and basically the book was written with the creators of Silicon Valley. John Altshuler and Dave Krinsky, they're my writing partners and they, they really enjoyed my, my story. So we, we wrote the book together and both to become a TV show in the future. Oh, I didn't know that. That's exciting. And for people who haven't yet read the book, I just want them to know we're not just talking about like, you know, you sold a few drugs on the street corner or something like that. We're talking about kidnappings and these huge things that used to go on in terms of like major drug sales and smuggling and international stuff happening and all of these huge things going on. And you really didn't seem like a likely candidate for somebody who would then step into the 12-step program and and really adopt it like you did. Yeah. Most people who who were involved in the stuff that I was involved in are either dead or in jail, you know, and I was really lucky that I didn't end up in either of those places. And uh, Yeah. It's, not the kind of story you hear every day, but part of being sober, going to the 12-step meetings, is people ask you to share your story. So I've been telling people my story for a lot of years, and because it's unusual. There's not many Irish lads here in L.A., and there's not many Irish lads who used to be a gangster who were sober in L.A. too, so I, I get to tell my story a lot, but people just said to me I should write a book about it. I finally did. And you know what, though? You did a really good job of not glamorizing your story as in, this is so amazing and look at all these awesome things I did. You're pretty humble and you say, you know, um, I didn't want to share my story initially because I thought like I was a bad guy for doing a lot of these things. Absolutely. I'm not proud of a lot of the stuff that I did, but um, it's a positive story because it's about somebody who changes their life and stops misbehaving and yeah, a lot of the stuff that happened to me wasn't glamorous. It's not glamorous to be beaten unconscious or have, have your face bitten or uh, get arrested. You know, a lot of these things aren't fun. <laughs> and what do you think was the difference about why you got out of it? And as you say, a lot of the people you uh, were with during the day, the other Irish gangsters are are dead or um, 
Well, still struggling. Well, in America, I was with some Asian gangsters. I was in an Asian gang, so I was the only the only white fella in that gang. But I was in Irish gangs back in Ireland too. But the reason I got sober is because somebody helped me. I didn't get sober on my own. This fellow that I used to work with, um, his name was Bernard, or Americans would say Bernard. So I was I was a criminal, but I was also in construction. And Bernard was a sober construction worker. He knew I had a problem and. I used to always ask him questions. I'd be curious about what the 12 because I knew he got sober by going to 12 step meetings. So I'd say to him, What was all these meetings? And, uh, you know, I'd be curious about it. And, uh, and he, he didn't give away a whole lot or he didn't, he didn't preach to me. He didn't say, You have a problem. He just says, This is my number. Give me a call if you want to get sober. And for some reason, I, I kept his number and I hit my bottom one day and, and, I kind of thought I was crazy, you know, because I didn't understand what it meant to be an alcoholic or an addict. I used to get depressed and quick to anger and all these kind of feelings. I had no idea that was part of being an addict. And um, so I kind of thought I was crazy. But I knew I had the, the problem with the drugs and alcohol. And towards the end of my drinking, I kept wanting to kill myself all the time. These thoughts would come to me all the time. But but uh, I, I got the idea that maybe if I can stop drinking and getting high, then I'll stop wanting to kill myself. So that's when I called Bernard and, and uh, he took me to my first meeting. And, and basically he saved my life. He showed me how to how to do it and how to not drink again. Because I, I thought I had to keep on drinking. Like, you know, I thought I had to keep on getting high. I didn't think there was any other way of living. But, but this fella saved my life. You know, I did. That's. That's I credit him with with helping me. You know, I didn't figure out how to do it myself. You know. Uh yeah, a couple of things. I had I was curious if you'd done all the voices in your book. I now know that you did, right? In your audio book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad they wanted, wanted me to do the, the narration because I don't know how the hell anybody else was going to know how these people in my story sound. <laughs> right. And, and again, it was a captivating audiobook to listen to. But I did like that part of your story, how you talked about this other person just said to you, like, if you give me a call when you're ready. And he didn't lecture you, didn't say you have a problem, didn't try to convince you, to, and didn't drag you to go, mm-hmm. but instead knew maybe someday you'd get to the point where you were willing to. And then when you when you were, he picked you up and brought you, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, it's funny, like, because when you when you get sober going to twelve step meetings, you're supposed to get a sponsor. Mount is the person who helps you and shows you how how to do it. And so he knew a lot of my story, but I guess he didn't know it all because I sent Bernard a copy of the book recently, and and uh, and he read it because I dedicated the book to him. And uh, Eddie says to me, uh, "I had no idea you were so crazy." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And well, you know, that brings me to another question. Sometimes it's like the chicken and the egg. I'm a therapist. So people will say like, I can't stop drinking until I improve my mental health. But then on the other side of the coin is, well, maybe if you stop drinking, your mental health will get better. What did you find when you quit using drugs and you quit drinking? What happened to your mental health? Well, when I just took away the medicine, like the cocaine and the the booze was my medicine. That's what I needed to live life all the time. Like, you know, whenever I had any kind of a feeling, I wanted to get high or drink. So if I was bored, I'd drink. If I was happy, I'd drink. Let's celebrate. If I was annoyed about something, I'd drink because that would make me feel better. It was literally the solution to that any time I had a feeling. So I'm used to drinking since I was 
14, 15, and I was 28 when I got sober. So I had a lot of years of that was normality for me. So what happened was when I when you just take away the drink and, and the coke at the start, I was like super irritable because I had no medicine. <laughs> that was my medicine for life. Um, so at the beginning, I was I was pretty irritable because you have to learn how to do everything sober. And and it, just basics, I had no idea how to do sober. Like, like I remember I started going to the meetings and Bernard says to me, he says, we're going to go for go for fellowship. And uh, I said, what the hell is fellowship? And uh, he says, where we go and hang out. I said, um, where are we going to hang out? He said, we're going to hang out in a coffee shop. And I, that was kind of an alien concept to me. I said, what are we going to do there? He said, we're going to drink coffee and talk. And, <laughs> and, and, and for me, that was that was completely bizarre. I had never gone into a coffee shop and had a coffee with somebody. Because usually if I was in a social setting, I'd want to have a couple of beers to take the edge off because I used to get social anxiety. And then, so I had to basically learn how to do everything sober without without the medicine. So at the start, it was completely alien to me and I was very irritable. But then I was going to these 12-step meetings and, uh, and I asked Bernard, how, how do I stop drinking? How do I make these cravings go away? And he says, we're going to go to meetings every day and we're going to work the steps so basically working the 12 steps is what gave me a bit of relief and brought me to where I am now, where I don't need to drink at all or get high. I can kind of get through life like a normal person, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that makes your book really cool is you explain that the 12 steps aren't just like a checklist and you sit down and you check them all off and then you're done. Instead, you explained how as you worked through the steps, you gained the skills that you needed to do things sober, like you learned how to manage conflict without violence, and you learned how to communicate with people and how to confront somebody when you're offended rather than beat them up. And as you explain these things, we really get into your thoughts, because mm -hmm. one of the things is we often see is the change in somebody's behavior. Somebody will say, yeah, I quit using drugs, I quit drinking, and they might say it was kind of hard. But the cool thing about your book is you go through and, and really detail how your thought process changed. You spent a lot of years thinking you were a victim, even though you put yourself in these horrible circumstances. When something bad happened, you never took responsibility because you said, well, that was like the whatever happened in the end was somebody else's fault. But then as you go through the 12 steps and you do this moral inventory and you start talking about the, the things, making amends, you really had to come to terms with the fact that, well... I share some responsibility in a lot of the things that happened to me. Yeah, totally. Like part of getting sober is kind of, part of it is dealing with your past. So obviously I had a bad past because I was a criminal, <laughs> you know. I never killed anybody, but I, 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 I did some bad things, you know. And, and um, well, yeah, as you were saying, part of it was I thought, like in a lot of cases, I felt like I was a victim. I really, even though I was a criminal, I kind of thought I was a good guy. You know, I didn't snitch on anybody or anything like that. You know, part of the steps is, um, they call it making a, a moral inventory. So what does that mean? You write down a list of all the people, places, and things that you're mad at, and your fears, and your relationship history, that kind of stuff. So I had a lot of people I was mad at, you know. And before I started to work with, with Bernard, who became my sponsor, I wasn't able to see that I had a part in a lot of the stuff I was mad about, like that I wasn't completely nice guy victim. But, um, I remember at the start, 
um, he told me to make the list, right? And then we had a talk about it. And then it, we sat down to talk about it. He says, what's on your list? I said, uh, okay, number one, Ollie, what did he do to you? I said, he snitched on me to the cops. So when I was a kid in Ireland, well, 19 or so, uh, I, was, I was a drug dealer, a wholesaler. I, I used to send them all over the country, right? All over Ireland. And uh, one of my employees, we'll call him Ollie, I had to change all the names in my book <laughs> for obvious reasons. But but Ali was one of my employees who got caught by the cops. And instead of keeping his mouth shut, he set me up, you know. So so he told me to come. He told me to come up with all all of the stuff I had, I had a bunch of drugs. And and the cops were waiting for me because he was working with the cops as a setup. And uh, so so I says I says he set me up with the cops. And uh, Bernard says to me, "What was your part in it?" I said, well, I, said, I said, well, I didn't have a partner. I was a stand-up guy. The cops came to me and they said, we just want the bigger fella. All you have to do is give us the bigger fella. You won't even go to court. But I didn't want to snitch on the person above me because I, I, I thought I had honor, you know, even though I was a criminal. And I said, I didn't have a partner. I was a stand-up guy. And Bernard says to me, weren't you selling drugs? I says, yeah. He says, aren't drugs illegal? I said, yeah. He says, well, if you weren't fucked selling drugs, you wouldn't have got arrested and he wouldn't have told on you. And that was a complete revelation to me because for all these years, I was mad at Ollie, you know, because he had snitched on me and, you know, got me in trouble. So so until I had a sponsor to help point that out to me, I, I thought I was a complete victim there. And then I realized, obviously, I'm not a victim if I'm committing crimes, <laughs> you know. And there was a bunch of stuff like that that, you know, my my sponsor Bernard, he helped me realize, and then I didn't feel like such a victim. And you know, I could look at I could look at a lot of things more um, with with, with a, a more clear perspective. You know. Yeah, and I appreciated that you walked us through your thought process and how it shifted. Because it's one thing to change your behavior. Okay, I'm not going to drink or I'm not going to use drugs. But if you really want to heal from the inside, you had to change your mindset. And you walked us through how that mindset changed over the years and how you learned these things differently to be able to say, all right, there's more than one way to view this story. And maybe I wasn't a, a victim all of these times that I thought I was. And perhaps if I take some responsibility, that's how you change, right? Moving forward. Yeah. And the bottom line is if a gangster gets sober, he's still a gangster unless he changes his behavior, <laughs> you know? So, so uh, when I got sober, I, you know, when I discovered these meetings and I realized there was an actual solution for me that I don't need to get higher drink no more, I was like all in with it. I said, Bernard, tell me whatever I got to do. I'll I'll do it, you know. And and he, he basically told me I had to change my whole moral compass. He, he told me in order to stay sober, you have to stop lying. You have to stop doing shady stuff. You have to stop being violent. All these kind of things that was, was basically the way I had been living. You know, and and uh, so so I, I was I was willing to try it, and it worked. <laughs> you know, it was just uh, it, it was um, I couldn't keep on selling drugs or stealing or doing any of this stuff if I wanted to stay sober. So I had to I had to not just put a plug in the jug. I had to like stop misbehaving too. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. You talked about the fact that you you were married for uh, quite some time during this and. But you, y'all had a girlfriend on the side. But you mm. knew if you continued your infidelity that that would just lead you down the wrong path. So it wasn't just about quitting the drugs and the alcohol. But you said, "I have to change my whole life." 
Yeah, everything. Yeah, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was not, going, I was not the husband of the year when I was married. At least when I was drinking. So, um, yeah, I had to stop all that kind of misbehavior because I, I saw it with other people too who started doing shady stuff or, or, um, you know, did leads them back to drinking again. So, I didn't want to drink again, so I had to change my behavior. So, I'm a therapist. I'm going to tell you the three biggest reasons why people are often resistant to 12-strip groups, and I want to know what you think about it. The first one is, is people say, it's too religious. I'm not into this whole God thing, or I'm an atheist. What would you say to somebody who says that? Um, that's the way I felt when, when I came into it, too, because I was raised Catholic. You know, I went to Mass when I was a kid. I was an altar boy, all this kind of shit. When I was a young lad, I kind of believed in God. And then as I became older and bad things happened to me, uh, I, I I became an atheist. I figured with all the bad things that happens to people, there couldn't be a God, you know. And especially a lot of stuff happened to me too that 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 uh, led me to believe that there there is no God. God's for children, you know, or it's like Santa Claus. That's the way I felt. And um, and then when I came into my twelve step meetings, uh, the very first meeting, I was listening. It was a men's meeting on a Friday night, and uh, and I was curious, but I was taking it all in. And I was listening to these men talk about how they had been feeling, like putting them off and, you know, getting irritated. And, and I could totally relate. And then I was all pumped about it. I was like, oh, this is the solution. I'm going to keep going to these meetings and I can stay sober. But at the end of that first meeting, everybody got up and held hands and prayed together. And it, it really freaked me out because like, uh, I had, I had you know, stamped my card as an atheist. And I was like, no, this isn't going to work must be some kind of a cult or a religion. Like, so I wasn't going to come back after that first meeting. And I, we left and I was all freaked out and I got into the truck with Bernard and uh, he was all excited as well. What did you think? <laughs> I said, what the f***? All that God And he goes, what God I said, holding hands and saying the Lord's Prayer. I, I don't want to do that Like, I, I'm an atheist, you know? And, uh, and he looked me and he goes, never mind Dutch. And and I and I was like, what? He goes, you don't have to believe in anything. At these meetings, there's Buddhists and atheists and Muslims and every fuck thing. He says, you don't have to believe anything. Just shut your mouth and come back to the meetings. So once I heard that, I don't need to believe in God or any of this kind of crap. I, I, that was okay with me. And then and then I I, I came back because a lot of people are a lot of people do pray in the meetings, but um, you know, if you're going to meetings, you don't have to believe anything. You know, so so um, I could see how people would be turned off because I I was turned off when I saw that when I came in, and then um, and then when I realized you you're not you're not forced to believe in anything, then I I kind of relaxed about it. But if I didn't have Bernard to tell me after that first meeting, I never would have came back. I'd be like, oh, this is fucking stay. This is weird. I'm not joining no religion. <laughs> right, and I think that's what happens with a lot of people is they they just think like I don't have a higher power, but. You made it clear that, well, you don't necessarily, you still pray, but you're like, I don't even know who I'm praying to. But as long as I believe in a higher power. And one of the parts I really liked is you said, I don't know if it's actually my higher power that helps me with the cravings or if it's just my belief in the higher power that makes them go away. But either way, it works, right? Yeah, either way. I haven't thought about drinking or getting high in nearly 11 years. Well, something's working. It's not me. <laughs> So the second reason why people will say, uh, I'm not going to try a 12-step meeting is they'll say everybody there's a hypocrite. 
And as a therapist, when I say, you should give it a try, they're like, Amy, you don't realize everybody who goes there is just getting drunk or getting high the minute they walk out the door. What do you say to people who have that concern? I wouldn't say everybody's a hypocrite, but you'll find hypocrites at the bar too. You know, everybody you meet at the bar isn't going to be nice. You're going to meet some assholes. The same as when you go to meetings, you'll meet some assholes too. Well, at least where I'm living in, in California here, we have a good old selection of meetings. Like here in LA, there's men's meetings, women's meetings, mixed meetings, gay meetings, comedian meetings, rocker meetings. So it's kind of like when I was a bar drinker, I used to like dive bars. I wouldn't be going to too too fancy places. I was more comfortable at dive bars. And it's kind of like the same thing with the meetings. You just find ones that work for you. Like if you're in the middle of nowhere, you're kind of folk because your, your choices might be limited. <laughs> like where I'm from in Ireland, there might only be two or three meetings a day. And if you go to those ones and you don't like the people, you're folk. You have to go over to the other county <laughs> or like a few towns over to find one the people you don't like. But yeah, obviously there's, there's hypocrites everywhere, but you know, I wouldn't be coming to these meetings for 12 years if it was good. I met a lot of good people. You know. And you can verify that the vast majority of people aren't. Yeah, there's a lot of good people. They're not getting high or drunk two minutes after they leave the door? Well, there are people who do that, but not, I would say, a small percentage. Like, you know, I, I, I never understood that when I came in, like, because sometimes you would meet people who pretended they were sober, but they were really using or drinking. But I didn't get what was the point of it. Like, like for me, it was like, just go and drink if you want to drink. If you don't, just you know, <laughs> come to the mate. Right. But it's and I think there's a couple things going on, right? Sometimes people are in different places. They're not quite ready to quit, but they're just curious. So they yeah. show up, right? And then you have other people who are there because they're on probation or they have a loved one who's concerned. So they're just trying to make other people get off their back, right? Exactly. Some people are just hiding out, whether they got the nudge from the judge or, or the wife is bothering them, or maybe they got in trouble at work and their work wants them to. Yeah, that's, that's the thing too, like, like when I when I was a young lad and I got in trouble that time when when I was caught dealing, I was very lucky I didn't go to jail. I was I was put on probation, and uh, I have to, used to have to go and see um, a drug counselor in Ireland at the time. They didn't send you the spouse that means they sent you the drug counselling, and I was like a nineteen year old kid. Like, but I didn't really believe I had a problem. Like, but before I got caught on a night out, I was probably averaging about. 15 ecstasy pills on a night out, maybe three or four times a week. But I didn't realize I had a problem. I thought that was the amount I was deciding to do and that I could stop anytime I wanted. So they sent me to these meetings at the time with, with, with a, a drug counselor. And so I would come in every week and tell this man a pack of lies because I, I thought it was like I was fooling them. I really didn't believe I had a problem. And I'm sure there's, there's also people who, who are going to the 12-step meetings who uh, might feel the same way. You know, they might not really believe they have a problem. Because when you're an addict or an alcoholic, there's a lot of denial that can go with it. Like if you if you meet somebody who has cancer and you tell them they have cancer, they're not going to go, no, I don't have cancer. <laughs> but if you tell an addict or an addict, a lot of times they go, I'm not an addict. I can handle my shoes. You know, so... Right. Everybody has a vision in their head of what somebody who has a problem looks like. And we think as long as I'm not that person, I don't live under a bridge and I don't uh, struggle, you know, every day or I'm able to take a day off once a month. So therefore, I don't have a problem. And you talked too about how you change the goalposts for yourself several times. Like 
you know, when your wife got pregnant, you said, well, then I'll, I should quit drinking. And then it was like, no, when she has the baby, I'll stop. And then you were like, no, the baby doesn't know if I'm using. So then you waited. I'm going to wait till the baby gets older. And you just kept changing it to justify your actions for a long time. Right. Yeah. Like the weird thing about being an addict, if you're, if you're in the middle of it, you think it's you that's making the decision. But after you get sober and you get a little bit of hindsight, you realize that you're powerless over it, you know, and I would I would come up with reasons why to explain my behavior, you know. Oh, I, I was gone all weekend, even though I'm married, but I'm only 22 and she got to have her youth and I didn't. Or uh, I had a fight today at work. I need to go and drink to drown my sorrows, you know, or, or uh, yay, Ireland won the football match. We need to celebrate. So, so there's a lot of this kind of um, making up a narrative to... Make it, make it up your own story to, to allow yourself to keep on doing it. It's a weird thing. Yeah. So, and the, I guess the third thing is that I hear from people is they'll say, well, Amy, I've been to 12-step meetings before, but I feel like everybody there is just pretending like they're happy or sober. They're not. What would you say to somebody that has that concern? Um, I would say I felt like that when I was new as well, because, you know, uh, I wasn't a very happy person when I tried to get sober. Like if you're in a place where you're trying to stop drinking and getting high, your life obviously isn't going well. So I used to come in, uh, I'd come to these meetings and I would see all these allegedly happy people and they would piss me off too, like, you know, because I wasn't feeling good. There's a friend of mine, Frank, a Scottish fella. Now when I was new, he'd say, he used to always share this thing, he'd say, I've got a wee daughter and she's never seen me take a drink. And, I, and I'd be thinking, oh, for you. <laughs> you know, because like, when I got sober, my kids were three and five. So they might have seen me taking a drink. They might not remember it. They might be so young. But um, but yeah, and, and plus when I was new, everybody like comes up to me and they're like giving me their phone numbers and stuff. And they're like, oh, give me a call anytime. Like, and and all these men were giving me their numbers. I, I was thinking, are these fellas gay or what? Like, because it, I, I lived in a world where you don't help somebody for free. You know, I like yeah. if you're nice to somebody, you want something off that person or, or they're going to owe me something. And so that's the way it is when you're in the bar. Like, you know, people aren't just, usually nice to you for no reason like so 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 yeah it, I, i'm i was kind of skeptical and paranoid by nature so i had all these people being nice to me and asking me for my number and calling me up to see how i was doing that that wasn't the world where i lived in and it took me a while to realize that there was no cats like you like uh, a, lot of, a lot of times people just really wanted to help you like there was no agenda and and i knew i was a bad dude because of all the stuff i had done and these people didn't care about that all they cared was this is a new man and he wants to get sober and we want to help him so it took me a little while to adjust to that because i didn't believe that people were really could really be nice like that yeah i guess to accept help when you're suspicious of people in general and to wonder like, why are they being so friendly and so nice and why do they want to help me and then to allow them to come into your life a little bit and just show you some genuine kindness must have been tough. Yeah, the main thing was just me believing that they really did want to help because <laughs> that's that now was something I was used to. And then eventually, when you see that there's no catch and people, there, there's actually good people out there who are willing to help you for fun and for free. Uh, it was it was like finding something that that didn't exist in my life. 
Did you do anything else to help you get sober aside from going to meetings? No, I just did the meetings and uh, and worked okay. the steps. Yeah, no, I, and I, I never got to go to rehab. I used, I used to be envious of people who got to go to rehab. <laughs> you know, because for me, it looked like a holiday camp. Like when, before I got sober, there used to be a TV show called Celebrity Rehab a reality show and I, and I used to watch that while I was drinking and getting high and and I I used I used to like laugh at these people I'd say oh, these these idiots can't handle their shoes and I'm I'm the alcoholic and addict who's looking at them so so my perception of what a rehab was is hang out by a swimming pool all these fine chicks and smoke cigarettes and do yoga that, that's what I thought rehab was you know, but obviously there's a lot of different kinds of rehabs. They're all not like those those Malibu kinds. So I never got to go to rehab. Nobody ever brought me. I'm sure I was bad enough to go to rehab, but uh, but I think maybe my wife at the time didn't know enough about addiction to to either. And even if she did ask me to go, uh, there's no guarantee I would have accepted the the suggestion. So right. so to answer your question, I basically. When I was getting sober, I still had a job. I was working in construction, so I'd work construction during the day, and then uh, and then at nighttime I would go to meetings every day. And and then at the weekends were a killer because for me as an alco- as an alcoholic and an addict, downtime is what's tempting. So if there's nothing going on, that's the dangerous time where I might want to drink. So at the weekends, when I was new, I would go to three meetings a day, just <laughs> just to stop myself from going crazy. But um, that's what it took for me. So last question for you. If we have somebody listening who says, I've thought about going to meetings, but like I just can't find the courage to walk in the door. I can't push myself to go. What would you say to that person? Well, I didn't have the courage to go either. You know, I, 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 was, I was a criminal and I used to carry a gun and all this kind of stuff and you know, do all this tough stuff. But at the same time, I didn't have the guts to go into a meeting by myself. That's why I called Bernard. But uh, if if you don't have the courage to go actually into a room, um, these days you have online meetings on Zoom. So if you're feeling like that and you don't have anybody to bring you, maybe I would suggest doing a search for these sobriety meetings on Zoom. And you can log in and you can leave your camera off and nobody will even see you. And, and just go on and have a listen and see see if you can relate to it. You know, and you might have the same experience I had where I came in, I heard these men talk and I was like, oh, there's more people who's like me. Because I, I, I kind of thought that there was nobody like me. I was a unique, unique person. Nobody felt like I felt. You felt the way I felt. You drink too. And then I came in, I was like, wow, there's more of them. Cause, because these people were sharing the same feelings I was having. So I, I, if you're feeling like that these days, you don't have to go into a room. You check out the Zoom. Great idea, because that's a really easy way to sort of just check it out, listen in without having to feel like anybody's looking at you or you don't have to share your real name or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Richie Stevens, thank you so much for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. Thanks a million for having me, Amy. And if anybody wants the book, um, it's on Amazon or Audible or Simon & Schuster. Um, yeah, you can find me on social media. Richie actor on Instagram and anyone who hasn't any of my friends who hasn't heard Amy before you can please rate and subscribe to the podcast oh thank you I will link to your book in the show notes and uh, I highly encourage people to listen to the audio book too because it's a fun listen thanks so much Amy welcome to the therapist take 
This is the part of the show where I'll break down Richie's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Richie's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, check out an online 12-step group if you don't want to attend one in person. Going to your first meeting or even a first therapy appointment or walking through the door to rehab can be terrifying. So I like that Richie suggested trying an online meeting first if you're struggling to go to a meeting by yourself. There are online 12-step meetings 24-7, and you can easily find links to them online. You can join a meeting without turning on your camera and without revealing your name. You don't have to say anything either. You might just sit and observe and learn what meetings are all about. Even if you live in a small town, you might be surprised to discover that there are still several meetings every single day. You can find local AA or NA meetings online. If you have any difficulty finding them, contact your doctor or call a hospital and ask for a social worker. They can usually provide you with that information. And number two, practice doing things sober. Richie said doing things sober was a completely new experience for him. Even having a cup of coffee with someone and talking to people weren't things he was used to doing. He'd always used alcohol or drugs to calm himself first. So he had to learn how to do sober things one small step at a time. That's important. I have a lot of therapy clients over the years who have thought they couldn't do certain things sober. Or they concluded that they just weren't like everyone else since things that gave them anxiety seemed easy to everyone else. But with practice, they were able to get used to doing things sober over time, and it got easier. Number three, when something doesn't work, stay open-minded. I appreciated that Richie was honest about his concerns about 12-step meetings when he first started attending. He was convinced that they weren't going to work for him. But he agreed to try again, even though he didn't completely believe everything he was hearing. That's important. Whether you're trying medication for the first time, or you're trying to use an app that might help you stay sober, stick with it for a while to give it a chance. You might change your mind over time, or you might still get something from a meeting or treatment, even if you don't agree with everything. The most important thing is don't give up if something doesn't seem like it's a good fit. You might change course or give something else a try, but keep trying things until you discover what works best for you. So those are three of Richie's strategies that I highly recommend. Check out an online 12-step group if attending one in person feels overwhelming. Practice doing things sober one small step at a time and stay open-minded about treatment options. To learn more about Richie's experience, check out his book, The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety. It's filled with great information and it's pretty entertaining too. And then reach out to him on social media to let him know what you think of his book. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.